The Law School of America A security deposit is a sum of money held in trust either as an initial part payment in a purchasing process, often used to prevent the seller selling an item to someone else during an agreed period of time while the buyer verifies the suitability of the item, or arranges finance, also known as an earnest payment, or else, in the course of a rental agreement to insure the property owner against default by the tenant and for the cost of repair in relation to any damage explicitly specified in the lease and that did in fact occur. In certain taxation regimes a deposit need not be declared as a part of the gross income of the receiving party, person or corporation, until either the depositing party or an arbitrator agrees the funds may be used for the intended purpose. The United States Supreme Court ruled in Commissioner v. Indianapolis Power & Light Company, 1990, that a deposit differs from an advance payment because the depositing party has dominion over the funds and retains the right to insist upon repayment in cash. On the other hand, the party making an advance payment retains no right to insist upon the return of the funds as long as the recipient fulfills the contractual agreement. The rationale behind the court's decision is that the recipient of the deposit does not enjoy complete dominion over the funds and is subject to an express obligation to repay so long as the customer fulfills his or her legal obligations. Additionally, both the timing and the method of refund are largely within the control of the depositing party as he or she can choose to insist upon repayment in cash or apply the deposit to purchase services. The recipient's right to retain the funds of the deposit is contingent upon events that are outside of his or her control. Although the recipient may receive an economic benefit from the deposits, for example, interest, the prospect that income will be generated provides no ground for taxing the principal. However, any income that the recipient may earn through the use of the deposit money will be taxable. In leasing, Security deposits are required most often by lessors of automobiles, apartments, and commercial real estate. The security deposits required by many residential landlords of their tenants are the source of much dispute and litigation. Many states and municipalities have enacted laws that specifically regulate the landlord's ability to withhold tenant security deposits after a tenant moves out. Some states and cities require that interest be paid to the tenant as it is earned on the security deposit. A landlord's deductions from a tenant's security deposit must be reasonable. The landlord may make deductions for missing rent payments and for damages beyond ordinary wear and tear, which is the subject matter's depreciation or deterioration in value by reasonable and ordinary use by the tenant. Examples of non-deductible wear and tear include, paint retouching, minor cleaning, small tack holes, and nicks and scratches. Examples of deductible damages include large or excessive holes in the wall carpet stains, and broken doors and windows. If a landlord wrongfully withholds a tenant's security deposit, the tenant may be entitled to additional damages beyond the amount of the security deposit. These may include statutory damages for violation of a local statute on consumer collection practices, damages that may be two or three times the amount of the deposit, in some states, such as California, consequential, resulting, damages, interest, and in more rare instances punitive damages. In some legal regimes the deposit has to be placed with an independent escrow agent or licensed deposit taker such as a bank so that the risk of fraud is reduced and the funds earn interest at a fair market rate. Often car rental and car leasing companies will require a deposit to protect themselves against possible damage to the car. Once the car is returned, it is checked for any possible damage, and if damage is found, funds are deducted from the deposit to cover the repairs and the loss of value. In the United States of America, Washington, D.C., Alaska, Illinois, and Wisconsin have notably more tenant-friendly legislation than states like Indiana or Michigan, for example. The cities of Madison, 
Wisconsin, and Chicago, Illinois, have substantially greater protection of tenant security deposit rights than the surrounding areas. Studies have shown that landlords often improperly withhold security deposits after tenants move out, and often get away with it because it's too much trouble to fight. In metropolitan cities of India like Chennai, Bangalore, Mumbai or others, there is a security deposit to be given up front to the landlord before renting slash leasing an apartment. This security deposit amount can range anywhere from 3 to 11 months, depending upon the city's norm. With rentals soaring high in metropolitan cities, this amount becomes exorbitant. Hence, anyone shifting an apartment or moving cities in lieu to job change, finds it difficult financially. It is a dent on savings as this cost is not borne by the company that has helped the shifters movers and packers. The recent changes to the condominium and cooperative laws in New York have created limits for the regulations behind security deposits. Cooperative boards can no longer charge more than one month of prepaid maintenance and another month's maintenance as a security deposit restricting the amount to be owed before moving in. Black Acre, Whitaker, Greenacre, Brown Acre, and variations are the placeholder names used for fictitious estates and land. The names are used by professors of law and common law jurisdictions, particularly in the area of real property and occasionally in contracts, to discuss the rights of various parties to a piece of land. A typical law school or bar exam question on real property might say, Adam, owner of a fee simple in Blackacre, conveyed the property to Bill for life, remainder to Charles, provided that if any person should consume alcohol on the property before the firstborn son of Charles turns 21, then the property shall go to Dwight in fee simple. Assume that neither Bill, Charles, nor Dwight is an heir of Adam, and that Adam's only heir is his son, Edward. Discuss the ownership interests in Blackacre of Adam, Bill. Charles, Dwight, and Edward. Where more than one estate is needed to demonstrate a point, perhaps relating to a dispute over boundaries, easements or riparian rights, a second estate will usually be called Whitaker, a third, Greenacre, and a fourth, Brownacre. Origin. Jesse Duke Minier, author of one of the leading series of textbooks on property, traces the use of Blackacre and Whitaker for this purpose to a 1628 treatise by Sir Edward Coke. Duke Minier suggests that the term might originate with references to colors associated with certain crops, peas and beans are black, corn and potatoes are white, hay is green, or with the means by which rents were to be paid, with black rents payable in produce and white rents in silver. A 1790 treatise by Francis Buller similarly uses these placeholder names, stating, if A have black acre and C have white acre, and A has a way over white acre to black acre, and then purchases white acre, the way will be extinct and if they afterwards in Fof C. of White Acre without accepting the road, it is gone. An alternate theory is that the term arises from Civil War policy in which plots of plantation land given to recently emancipated African-American freedmen, freed slaves, during the Reconstruction period under Sherman's 40 acres and a mule policy. Such plots were colloquially called Black Acres. Since most of the freed slaves were illiterate, many were cheated out of their land through shady loan contracts with former plantation owners. These disputes, along with questions of the proper contractual entitlement of the slaves to the land in the first place, provided the basis for the development of modern American contract and property law and has come to refer to situations where there exists some contention or ambiguity surrounding the rightful owner or respective rights of the parties. In various law journals and treatises in Louisiana, which uses a unique form of the civil law influenced by but not identical to the Napoleonic Code, authors have used the term Arpent Noir as a placeholder name for the purpose of discussing rights concerning immovables. 
One of the more basic theories is that Blackacre and Whitaker are related to what professors could draw on dark chalkboards in early law school settings. A simple outline of the property on the blackboard being Blackacre and a chalk colored in property being Whitaker. In popular culture, because of its association with legal education, a number of legal publications and events utilize the name. For example, Blackacre was adopted as the name of the literary journal at the University of Texas School of Law. Blackacre is also the name of a journal at the University of Sydney Law School, published annually by the Sydney University Law Society, the name of the open-air courtyard and weekly student social at Vanderbilt Law School, and the name of a William Mitchell College of Law formal. The Blackacre Nature Preserve and Historic Homestead in Kentucky was so named by the donor of the land, Macaulay Smith, who had been a judge on the Kentucky Court of Appeals. In July 2010, a legal humor website wrote an article chronicling the foreclosure sale of Blackacre. A group of law students in Indianapolis founded a brewery named Blackacre Brewing Company in late 2010 as a homage to their legal schooling. Monica Yoon's 2016 book of poetry from Grey Wolf Press is titled Blackacre. In reference to the legal concept, Yoon has a law degree from Yale. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Lex Loci Re City, Latin for law of the place where the property is situated, or simply Lex Situs, is the doctrine that the law governing the transfer of title to property is dependent upon and varies with the location of the property, for the purposes of the conflict of laws. Conflict is the branch of public law regulating all lawsuits involving a foreign law element if a difference in result will occur depending on which laws are applied. Lateral and subjacent support, in the law of property, describes the right a landowner has to have that land physically supported in its natural state by both adjoining land and underground structures. If a neighbor's excavation or excessive extraction of underground liquid deposits, crude oil or aquifers, causes subsidence, such as by causing the landowner's land to cave in, the neighbor will be subject to strict liability in a tort action. The neighbor will also be strictly liable for damage to buildings on the landowner's property if the landowner can show that the weight of the buildings did not contribute to the collapse of the land. If the landowner is unable to make such a showing, the neighbor must be shown to have been negligent in order for the landowner to recover damages. If the landowner owns everything beneath the ground on his property, he may convey to another party the rights to mineral deposits under the land and other things requiring excavation, such as easements for buried conduits or for water wells. However, such a conveyance requires the recipient to prevent any damage to the surface of the land caused by the excavation unless the conveyance itself grants express authority for the surface land to be damaged, as reasonably necessary for the recipient to exercise his extraction rights. Riparian water rights, or simply riparian rights, is a system for allocating water among those who possess land along its path. It has its origins in English common law. Riparian water rights exist in many jurisdictions with a common law heritage such as Canada, Australia, and states in the eastern United States. Common land ownership can be organized into a partition unit, a corporation consisting of the landowners on the shore that formally owns the water area and determines its use. General Principle Under the riparian principle, all landowners whose properties adjoin a body of water have the right to make reasonable use of it as it flows through or over their properties. If there is not enough water to satisfy all users, allotments are generally fixed in proportion to frontage on the water source. These rights cannot be sold or transferred other than with the adjoining land and only in reasonable quantities associated with that land. The water cannot be transferred out of the watershed without due consideration as to the rights of the downstream riparian landowners. Riparian rights include such things as the right to access for swimming, boating, and fishing 
the right to wharf out to a point of navigability, the right to erect structures such as docks, piers, and boat lifts, the right to use the water for domestic purposes, the right to accretions caused by water level fluctuations, the right to exclusive use if the water body is non-navigable. Riparian rights also depend upon reasonable use as it relates to other riparian owners to ensure that the rights of one riparian owner are weighed fairly and equitably with the rights of adjacent riparian owners. United States The United States recognizes two types of water rights. Although use and overlap vary over time and by state, the western arid states generally follow the doctrine of appropriation, also known as first come, first served, but water rights for the eastern states follow riparian law. Riparian rights. Under riparian law, water is a public good like the air, sunlight, or wildlife. It is not owned by the government, state or private individual but is rather included as part of the land over which it falls from the sky or then travels along the surface. In determining the contours of riparian rights, there is a clear distinction between navigable, public, waters and non-navigable waters. The land below navigable waters is the property of the state, and subject to all the public land laws and in most states public trust rights. Navigable waters are treated as public highways with any exclusive riparian right ending at the ordinary high water mark. Like a road, any riparian right is subordinate to the public's right to travel on the river, but any public right is subject to nuisance laws and the police power of the state. It is not an individual right or liberty interest. Because a finding of navigability establishes state versus federal property, navigability for purposes of riverbed title is a federal question determined under federal law. The states retain the power of defining the scope of the public trust over navigable waters. A non-navigable stream is synonymous with private property, or jointly owned property if it serves as a boundary. The state could choose to divest itself of title to the stream bed but the waters and use of the waters remain subject to the Commerce Clause of the United States Constitution which holds an easement or servitude, benefiting the federal government for the purpose of regulating commerce on navigable bodies of water. The reasonable use of the water by a riparian owner is subject to the downstream riparian owner's riparian right to receive waters undiminished in flow and quality. Since all surface waters eventually flow to the public ocean, federal regulatory authority under the Clean Waters Act, like the Clean Air Act, extends beyond only public, navigable, waters to prevent downstream pollution. States' Involvement Federal courts have long recognized that state laws establish the extent of the riparian and public right. In the case of navigable waters, the title goes to the average low water mark. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court defined it as the ordinary low water mark, unaffected by drought, that is, the height of the water at ordinary stages. Land below the low water mark on navigable rivers belongs to the state government in the case of the 13 original states. Lands between the high and low water marks on navigable rivers are subject to the police powers of the states. In the case of the original 13 states, upon ratification of the U.S. Constitution, title to these submerged lands remain vested in the several states similar to the public or common roads. As new lands were acquired by the United States, either by purchase or treaty, title to the highways and the beds of all navigable, or tidal, water bodies became vested in the United States unless they had been validly conveyed into private ownership by the former sovereign. During the territorial period, the United States held these titles in trust for the benefit of the future states that would be carved out of the territory. Each of the states were to come into the Union on an equal footing with the original 13 states. Under the Equal Footing Doctrine, Territorial states are vested with the same sovereign title rights to navigable submerged lands as the original 13 states. However, during the territorial period, 
the United States could convey certain of these lands under the limited circumstances of promoting commerce. Ownership of lands submerged by navigable waters was resolved by Congress passing the Submerged Lands Act, which confirmed state title to the beds of all tidal and navigable bodies of water. While the Act conveyed land title to the states, non-navigable stream beds remained treated like dry lands and contiguous to the adjoining estates. Water subject to the ebb and flow of the tides, even if non-navigable, also passed to the states, but the continued ownership and public use of these tidal-slash-marshlands are based on state laws. England and Wales. The Environment Agency lists the riparian rights and duties in England and Wales. The rights include ownership of the land up to the center of the watercourse unless it is known to be owned by someone else, the right for water to flow onto land in its natural quantity and quality, the right to protect property from flooding and land from erosion subject to approval by the agency, the right to fish in the watercourse unless the right is sold or leased if an angler has a valid Environment Agency rod license. They also include the right to acquire accretion and the right to boomage, a fee charge for securing a boom, generally for the retention of logs. Duties arising from the model include the following. Pass on the flow of water without obstruction, pollution or diversion affecting the rights of others. Maintain the bed and banks of the watercourse and to clear any debris, whether natural or artificial, to keep any culverts, rubbish screens, weirs and mill gates clear of debris. Be responsible for protection of land from flooding and cause no obstructions, temporary or permanent, preventing the free passage of fish. Accept flood flows even if caused by inadequate capacity downstream, but there is no duty to improve the drainage capacity of a watercourse. The Law School of America The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America